You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. You know, Gary, when I first started reading this book, the first thing that brought to my mind, because it's such your world that you create, is such a mixture of the past and the present and the future. I was thinking, reminded me of a quote by William Gibson where he said, the future has arrived, but it's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, well, lately I feel like there's really no present left. Uh, Everything I do is so futuristic. You know, today you just showed me your iPad. This thing is incredible. Uh, often I feel like um, the world I live in, it's almost entirely digital, and the analog world is slowly retreating. Uh, well, you have to read the book, but yes, they are. Uh, what happens to the people that are older, they are eventually moved out of New York, which becomes a lifestyle hub, and to places like New Rochelle. Yeah, I know, fate worse than death, right? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I love in this book is the scene where we get to see the posters on, on uh, his boss's walls with the uh, science fiction films. Uh. Logan's Run. Yes, I grew up as a real nerd, uh, <laughs> what a surprise, in, uh, you know, in, uh, in a Russian bungalow colony in upstate New York, and we would read Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine like it was you know, the Bible. Uh, oh, how I love that stuff. I think one of the books that really influenced me was uh, 1984, obviously, which is a wonderful dystopian fiction, but also has a love story at its core. You know, the thing I remember the most, Brave New World, I think, is, is, a, is a more interesting novel of ideas. Uh, Orwell, was, when writing 1984, was basically cribbing Stalinist Russia and just riffing off that. But 1984 is the one I remember the most because Julia and Winston, you know, they love each other, mm -hmm. and it's the idiotic society around them that doesn't allow that love to happen. And I think, you know, I was really trying to steal that and, and, and impose that on our own. Uh, I don't think uh, this kind of um, speculative fiction is really about the future at all. It's, 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 it's about where we are now. No, no, you're, you're just writing a, writing a vision of, of the present world. And in fact, uh, famously, George Orwell himself wanted to, uh, originally wanted to title 1984-1948, but they said, no, 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 no. You work in Room 101, that's enough. And he did work in Room 101. He did, he did work in Room 101. Now, one of the things I think that makes this book really effective, um, because it's very funny, but in order to get the humor working, is the fact that you have, it really has a, a, a great, this love story you're talking about, that you have a, a lot, it has a lot of heart. A and I want you to talk about creating people who we really love and care about and a kind of a, a sense of sweetness in this world that's really raunchy and kind of creepy. Yeah, it was, it was, this, was the, this was the first time that I actually sort of started to feel love for my own characters. My last book, uh, Absurdistan, was about a 325-pound man with a bad circumcision. So, you know, there wasn't... I knocked him around the world and gave him a, a really tough time. And I always mistreat my characters. You know, I never give them... I, I, they never end up with the kind of good future that I would wish for myself. But as I was writing this book, I felt very sad for Lenny and Eunice because... As I was writing it, their love became more real in my own eyes, and I started to love them in turn. And as I was imposing one horrific thing uh, on them and also on America, which slowly falls apart in this, in this novel, uh, I began to feel a kind of, uh, you know, almost parental feeling of, I got to take care of these people. 
and, and so I began to sort of massage their future a little bit and to make sure that at least their love uh, so would survive for, the, for, the, for not the entire book, perhaps, but for most of the book. Well, also, too, one of the things that must have been difficult is to write a, a vision of the future that even keeps up with the present. I, I mean, that's, that's got to be, that was, must have been your real challenge. It was such a challenge. I mean, I wish I were a, born a blogger instead of a novelist because uh, it's really hard, you know. It, in a, I started this book in 2006, you know, and I had this wild idea that the banks would collapse and Lehman Brothers would collapse, you know. And then I took a ride in a Chevy and I thought, oh my God, nobody, this is the worst car I've ever seen. <laughs> this, this is no Hyundai Sonata, you know, this is terrible. And I thought, okay, th th everything is going to hell. But as I began to write this book, all these things actually started happening. And so I constantly had to ratchet up the awfulness of what was going on in this country, you know, so that by the end of the book, the whole place is bought out by a Norwegian hedge fund, you know. So th this was my challenge, and this is the challenge of anyone who's writing any long-form fiction today, is that if you're trying to describe anything that isn't, you know, that isn't historical fiction, you're basically running on a giant treadmill that is going much faster and faster. You know? uh, and the way technology especially is moving, it's ratcheting up in this incredible curve, this incredible upward parabola, and uh, this really was a huge challenge. I mean, the last book I wrote was about, the, the first two books I've written were about the Soviet Union. And, and, and Russia and the post-Soviet empire. Uh, and, and that's very easy to write about because no matter when you go back to Russia, things always suck, you know? <laughs> they just suck slightly differently, you know? Uh, but this is a new book for me in the sense that I'm actually dealing with my adopted country. I'm dealing with America. And this, this, this also, the way I feel about Lenny and Eunice, there's a kind of love I feel for this country, which is often difficult to write about when you're writing about its demise and when you're slowly crafting the way it falls apart, slowly, piece by piece. And I thought it was really interesting, too, the way you kind of, the way you very subtly contrasted the historical motion of Russia from a monolithic uh, uh, dictatorship and bureaucracy towards this kind of crumbling, chaotic uh, democracy, and as America goes in the exact opposite direction. Yeah, was it uh, Dick Cheney once came to Kazakhstan and he said, Wow, I really love this country, you know. <laughs> he said, you know, you have, a, you have no democracy and you have a lot of oil. This is wonderful. <laughs> this is a real vision for the future. And I think Russia and America, especially before the, the current administration, really were coming together in a kind of nice meeting point, uh, which scares me to death. You know, I grew up in a failed empire. I grew up in the Soviet Union. And I remember, you know, the, 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 less, the fewer sausages there were, the, the more there was the vitriolic, patriotic kind of thing. And America is obviously a very different country and, and, and is in a different, very different place. But I start to get worried whenever there's this kind of jingoism or, or uh, xenophobia. You know, I, I start to think of that as, as, as a bad sign for, for, the, for a country's health. Well, the language of this novel is really uh, incredibly intricate. It's, there's a lot of it's invented. You, you rattle off more abbreviations in this book than you'll find in any kind of government document. <coughs> You're really selling it. <laughs> <laughs> Read it for the abbreviations. For the, really? No, it the abbreviations are yeah. great. Uh, Timotov is, is only the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Right. Um, Talk about creating these kind of, this kind of language and yet writing, writing something that people can read in, when you're writing about a world where people can't read. That's one of the big challenges of this book is that no, you know, you're describing a completely illiterate world and yet you have to describe it in words, in words that book lovers like yourselves would, would actually enjoy. And that required some compromises. Eunice, for example, um, 
in this future world, she is one of the most, her out of her generation, she's one of the smartest people around because she actually can form a sentence with a subject and a predicate, you know, which is astounding to, to most people around her who talk in these little bursts of you know, acronyms and data. So for me, this was very difficult to do. So I had, I had to make some concessions to the literary reader. And Eunice actually writes these, I think they get fairly beautiful, the emails she writes about her parents and about her life. Um, and um, in some ways I had to compromise because in, in, if I was going to stick to the real vision of the story, huge chunks of this book would be completely unreadable. I mean, maybe they're still unreadable, but it would have been much, much worse. Well, uh, talk about, too, about uh, do, you, do you like to text? Like, because there's lots of uh, faux texting kind of things happening here. And I'm wondering if even as we speak, you're going to take a break and, and text your wife and text, tell her yeah, yeah. about this Damn technology! This guy didn't know what the hell he's doing. The mic is falling apart. <laughs> click, click, click. Um, as research for this book, I, I really did li live in a cave before I began this book. Um, so as research for the book, I had to learn about new technology, uh, about which I know nothing. So I hired a, a person, uh, I guess an intern. Uh, mm -hmm. All my friends call him. He's a very beautiful tall man. They call him the man turn. Uh, <laughs> I, I, this would be a great Hollywood script, the man turn. You know? So my man turn uh, really... And, and my mentor just got a book deal, which is great. Oh, really? See? Yeah. <laughs> I taught him nothing that he knows. Um, and he is now, uh, so he sat me down and he showed me, you know, how to log in and on. And I got all these email accounts. Apparently, I'm the only Steingart in the world because I got Steingart at Hotmail and Yahoo and Gmail and all this stuff. And then uh, he got, uh, I have this Facebooking thing now that you can, you can join it, please. Uh, it's mostly pictures of dachshunds, uh, <laughs> but what more do you need, right? And my calorie counts and stuff like that. And uh, he showed, you can't be my friend for some reason. You have to like me. I don't understand. But you have, but please like me. I mean, this will make up for Hebrew school if all these people like me. Um, and then I got, and then the final step to the complete disillusion of myself as a, as a healthy analog person was the purchase of the iPhone, which I have which completely changed the way I look at things because, you know, I'm walking through New York and, or taking a cab ride or, or anything, and usually, as an author, I'm keeping my eye open. You know, I'm noticing, okay, ah, these kinds of genes, okay, but okay, this is what people look like in this present day, but now all I look at is the iPhone, which is pinging with useless information all day long and also telling me, you know, I'm programming, I mean, I, I know how to get to 23rd and Lex, and yet for some reason I feel the need to pull it in, to put it in, and then see my <laughs> but it did change the way I look at things, and it was very helpful for writing this book. And now that I finished this book and done all this research, I hope to take a little break from all the technological prowess that I've had to exhibit by joining the Facebooking thing and the iPhone and all this other stuff. Well, I'm going to read again <laughs> a book. Talk about, uh, you know, just your process as a writer. When, when you decided to write a piece of uh, speculative near future fiction, that's a pretty big decision. It's not what you'd done before. So tell us what made you do that and then how you set off about doing it. First of all, everyone told me that it was a bad idea. You know, uh, don't do it. They said you're in the wrong point in your career to do this. Uh, my friend said to one of my best writing buddies, said, oh, this will destroy your career, buddy. This is the end, you know. And I said, but I've already invested three years. And he said, well, if you don't publish anything now, your career will still be destroyed, you know, because <laughs> they think you don't have anything to say. Uh, so I did it anyway. Um, it's tough, it, you know, it, it, it's tough to take such a big turn, but on the other hand, because my, my, all my characters are, are Soviet Jewish nebishes, you know, I've perfected the Soviet Jewish nebish, I think, you know, so this is something I worked on, and, and um, writing it, you know, I write in a very leisurely manner, uh, 
I get up at 11, you know, and then I have a nice breakfast, and then I work from 12 to 4, uh, and then, like everyone else, we go see our shrinks, you know, like every other writer I know on uh, Park Avenue, and then we have a long uh, drink at uh, this uh, Viennese place, appropriately enough, uh, Cafe Sabarsky, and then we drink until midnight, and then the hangover, and then begins the cycle again, you know. Uh, but to research, to, a lot of this book was written at the uh, American Academy in Berlin in Wannsee, which is where the final solution was signed, which is one of the most depressing places on earth. And everything I had written there had to be completely thrown out because it was just too depressing for words. And then we, uh, I went to uh, Umbria, to Italy, and then that's where things really began to come together. The words came out of me like carbohydrates. It was a, a wonderful thing. How did you design this future? Was this like um, created in your mind kind of as a target and you, then you knew it and just started to walking around in it or did you just like launch into the unknown with your words and forge forward on a kind of a wave front? Well, I had the idea of two lovers. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where I began. I had the idea that there were two people who were woefully mismatched uh, and I had the idea that, that it was, uh, th that the gap in between their age was only 15 years, but that somehow that gap, you know, was enough in this, in this futuristic world, enough for them to be from two different planets. And then I thought, well, why would they fall in love with, with each other? Well, I know why he would fall in love with her. She represents youth to him. He's, he's so afraid of turning 40, he's about to die. Why on earth would she fall in love with him? And then I thought of them being from two very dysfunctional immigrant families. Um, hers Korean, his uh, Russian. And I thought that maybe that would be the thing that would, despite all odds, bring them together, you know. And, and I think that was, you know, in, in, in the end for me, if you don't have two compelling characters, or at least one compelling character, and you don't have, then you don't have a book and you don't have a plot. Everything else hinges on you able to orchestrate, and make this ballet between these two people work. And that brings up the other thing that I found really fascinating. I loved the families in this book that even in this chaotic, disturbing future where people barely know who's around them, you've created two really strong and, and interesting families. Uh, talk about uh, Eunice, 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 Eunice Park. Eunice Park's family, because I think that uh, that's a kind of a daring uh, road you took there. Oh my God, yes. I, it's always easy to write about your own ethnic group, you know. Uh, you're allowed to do that. You're given dispensation to write about, uh, I can write about Soviet Jews without, anyone raising an eyebrow, but to write about, uh, let's say, Korean-Americans is, is, is taking quite a risk. Uh, I was very lucky that my mentor in, uh, in um, graduate school was Chang Ray Lee, the brilliant Korean-American writer. Uh, recently wrote The Surrendered, also wrote Aloft, and native speaker, um, and A Gesture Life. So I was able to, after I completed the character of Eunice, I, I sent him all my notes and I said, is this okay, you know, can I do this? And he said, you do us very lovingly, it's okay, you know. So I, I got his permission. Um, and, but her family is uh, as dysfunctional immigrant family as you can imagine. Uh, the father is quite violent toward his children and toward his wife. And, you know, that's, that is taking a, a bit of a risk uh, in terms of writing that. And there's certain emails that they send to each other that, that may be misconstrued by certain readers. I don't know. I feel like if you're not, if you don't push it a little bit, if you just keep writing about the same thing, then it becomes, you become almost a caricature of yourself. I mean, how many times can I write about, the, the scene I read to you is, you know, filled with my usual sense of borscht, but, but the, the, you know, uh, it was wonderful to write about these two groups that are bound also by a love of cabbage, you know, the Russians and the Koreans. <laughs> um, although I must say the Koreans do a much better job of it than the Russians by... 
introducing the mysterious element of garlic into the proceedings, which <laughs> Russians are loath to do. Well, um, one of the things I, I also really liked was the, the way that you developed the relationship um, between uh, the uh, main character, uh, Lenny, and his boss. And so talk about this whole aging, anti-aging movement, because this is, you know, right, this is ab absolutely out of the present. Yeah. If you, uh, and if you move too slowly, Ray Kurzweil will drop a five-pound book on your head that says, called The Singularity is Near, and it's the, the theme of which is live long enough to live forever. Yes, yes, Ray Kurzweil and Aubrey de Grey are the two uh, masters of this. Uh, again, I had to have my man turn uh, sit down. I've read these books. I went to a science high school, uh, much like Lenny. I know nothing about science, so it was horrifying. You know, he, was, he sat me down, he's like, okay, this is what a cell is, you know, and a protron or a neutron or a protractor, you know, and I was <laughs> amazed by these, this new knowledge I had picked up. And, uh, you know, so Kurzweil is very interesting, and, and his, and, and the Gray is also another interesting uh, gentleman. They do think that it's almost like a religion, the singularity, some of you may have heard about it. Uh, in the future, we will all hopefully be downloaded onto some nice mainframe or cloud computing or floppy disk or whatever, and we can live this kind of life uh, along with everyone else, or at least our, our digital downloads of, of ourselves. Uh, I was shocked by it. I, the more research I did, I also found out that there's also the cryogenic movement where your head is lopped off and then put into a freezer for future, uh, you know, when the, the, there's a cure for whatever it is. What, uh, what fascinated me about this and when I was developing the character of Joshi was that so many of these people, or most of them, are men. You know, it's almost as if women aren't that interested in immortality. I, I was, uh, the membership roles, and maybe this has to do with the ability to reproduce, you know, the ability to bear children, but for some reason it's men who are entirely fixated on this, this uh, on the fact that death is imminent and, and to find a way to preserve one's personality, even if it means, you know, roaming around in a kind of uh, halo or whatever those video games are called. Uh, can you imagine that as an afterlife? I mean, it's... <laughs> I'll take death. Uh, I think actually we're cl pretty close to that right now <laughs> in, in our actual lives. Yes, yes. Now, uh, do we have any questions from the audience? Sir? Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the, uh, the relationship between the U.S. and China that you depict <laughs> and in general kind of what you're seeing now that led you to that and a little mm -hmm. bit about your process in solidifying that in the book. Sure. Well, U.S. and China, you know, like all writers uh, who are not uh, journalists per se, I am, I am, of course, working off uh, personal impressions. And one personal impression I had is just flying, you know, flying out of uh, JFK in New York or, or Newark Airport and landing in some place like Shenzhen or Guangdong or Guangzhou. You know, uh, what you sense is that you're leaving a country that is rapidly becoming, turning the clock back and becoming like a developing world country. Uh, the U.S. I'm talking about, where the pothole roads lead to a terminal as frightening as anything I've seen in, in my third world travels. Uh, and then you land in China, in, in a place like Shenzhen, and you see unbounded optimism. You know, there's a dictatorial system, no question, it's horrible. But there's so much hope. You land in an airport that I think, and Lenny lands in one of these airports, and it looks to him like a cor beautiful coral reef or something. You know, and then he journeys by mag, you know, you journey by maglev in, Sh in Shanghai to, to your destination. Uh, there are buildings in Shenzhen which are taller than the Empire State Building. This was a fishing village 20 years ago. So everything rises and falls. You know, America cannot rise indefinitely, obviously. Uh, the question is, what kind of a landing can we expect as the country slowly unfurls? You know, are we going to become like the Netherlands? That's the 
what a delicious scenario that would be if we were just high all the time, uh, you know, <laughs> and eating very milky cheese, you know. I mean, can you imagine like a, a giant Santa Cruz, of, you know, <laughs> that I could join easily. But then there's some not so happy imperial landings, you know, the, the, the Roman Empire obviously is one that didn't, didn't end so well and ended very quickly. And so my fear is, is, is simply, uh, how, and the other question I have is, how will America, and all these the people in this book are reacting to the fact that America is no longer the dominant power. America, like Russia, the country I was born, has this very messianic idea of itself as being not just a nation, but being the nation, the nation to which all other people must look up to and, and whose culture and economics are the ones that spread across the world. What happens if we no longer are in that position? How do we feel about ourselves? What, how do we develop a new identity, a post-imperial identity, like the Netherlands or the United Kingdom or Spain or Portugal or any other nation that was at one point a major, major power? Well, you know, continuing with that theme, I have to say that one of the uh, scenes in the book that's really actually kind of creepily disturbing is when the... Uh, when they, uh, China pulls its funds because this just seems like something that's so about to happen and can happen. It, it, uh, it's a scene set in the future that really brings us harrowingly back to the present. And that's one of the things this book does very well. Thank you. No, it's a, there's a frightening scene, not to give too much away, where China pulls out its treasury, uh, you know, support for, stops buying U.S. treasury bills, pulls out from it, and things really hit the fan. Um, right now, China would not do that because its own economy is dependent. You know, they would lose out as being major stakeholders in the dollar. But in this book, the dollar is barely there. It, it is completely pegged to the yuan, the Chinese yuan, uh, and, and its future is very much in doubt. I must admit, I know nothing about the Russo-Sino-Cheap economy. Uh, but the, uh, that's an interesting point, and I will, I will get my man turn on it immediately. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll find out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about it, too. Russia and China are an interesting, uh, interesting duo. Um, one of my favorite Soviet uh, Russian writers is a guy named Vladimir Sorokin. Uh, he's, he's barely translated into English, but he wrote a hilarious book called Goloboya Sala, which means blue lard. Goloboya also means gay in Russian, so it could also mean gay lard. What a great title, gay lard. <laughs> and in this book, it's set slightly in the future also. Or, and the Russia becomes basically a province of China. And the way, he, uh, uh, the way he arrived at that point was he thought, you know, here's a nation with 150 million population rapidly declining. You know, Russia is losing population by the second the average life expectancy for Russian men is 59. And here you have China, a nation that's booming beyond belief, whose population and wealth is booming. Wouldn't it make sense historically for this nation to own the other nation, sheep and all, you know? So I, I think that's a, he also had a wonderful scene, oh my God, uh, I love this guy. He had a scene, a, a sexual encounter between Stalin and Khrushchev. This is, uh, and it really pissed people off because uh, Khrushchev was on top of Stalin in this book. <laughs> And there's a lot of senior citizens in Russia who really love Stalin, so they built this giant toilet bowl outside the Bolshoi Theater, and they started flushing Sorokin's work down the, down the toilet, which is kind of sad. But on the other hand, what other nation gives a damn about literature to the point where they would build a giant wooden toilet? <laughs> Can you imagine that? Now, now, you're sure this isn't in your book? Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. What does it mean for you to be 
what does it mean to be Jewish? I survived eight years of Hebrew school, uh, and not just day school. I mean, like every day of the, you know, yeah. Huh? <laughs> uh, yes, sentenced to eight years for a crime I did not commit. Um, my parents came here. My father was very big in, in trying to be Jewish in Russia, which you couldn't do in the Soviet Union back then. So he sort of made sure that I would go to a Hebrew school. But it was a very strange time to go. It was the 19, you know, the, the, the Reagan, the evil empire. Being Russian, even in a Jewish school, was horrifying. Remember all those movies, uh, Red Dawn, Red Gerbil, Red Hamster, you know. It was, a, <laughs> it was a mess. And I remember the kids would always make fun of me. I wore these big woodland animal kind of hats and, and jackets. Uh, and, and, you know, and... and it was so bad being Russian that I had to pretend I was born in East Berlin. I had to pretend to be German in a Hebrew school. <laughs> this was the, this was the, just, it just unbelievable how, how this, uh, you know. And then were these crazy rabbis, and they would, you know, us Soviet kids, we would try to eat, uh, we love our pork, our kielbasa, we would eat it in the bathrooms, and these rabbi goon squads would just break, break down the toilet doors and say, you know, one of them yelled at me, said, because of you, the Holocaust happened. 11 years old, I thought, wow, I'm 11 years old. I already killed 6 million people, you know. <laughs> so my religious experience was very difficult, I would say. I was, um, although culturally, I, you know, I read books by so many wonderful Jewish authors and, and obviously in, in every other way, but religiously, I think that, that really that did the trick for me. And I, I, I was very happy when I did go to Stuyvesant High School uh, because it was such a, you know, there were so many diverse immigrants like myself and we all ate funky foods and we're trying desperately to get into Cornell, so there was a kind of closure there. How are you Jewish now? How am I Jewish now? Well, you know, I think living in New York, whether you're Jewish or not, you're still Jewish because everything's, <laughs> you know, I have, you know, Indian and Korean friends who basically speak in Yiddish at this point. Uh, that whole Steinfeld thing really uh, had a big impact. Um, you know, I think, and, and so many of the writers in New York uh, who are of note are, are of, of the Hebraic faith, the, the Jonathans, Jonathan Ames, Jonathan Saffron Foer, and uh, who's the other third Jonathan? Jonathan Lethem, of course. Three Jonathans. I, I don't live in Park Slope with the other Jews. I, I'm, uh, I live in, in Manhattan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh! But Manhattan is just the new Brooklyn now, so. <laughs> did I completely avoid that answer? I think I did. Good, okay, good. <laughs> Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> As a Marxist, I am so offended. No. Um, it, was, it was shocking to see it. And the price listed and the address listed. Um, it was quite a board interview. The, 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 one of the board guys said, you know, uh, um, what's his name, who wrote Angela's Ashes? Uh, Frank McCourt. He said, Frank McCourt used to live in this building, but as soon as he made it big, he just got the hell out of here. <laughs> so now I'm trying to do the same. Anybody need an apartment in the Union Square area? I'll trade for the Santa Cruz house. <laughs> Union Square? That's a spicy meat of ball. <laughs> Good transportation, access to Whole Foods. You know, Gary, one of the things about this book that I think is really interesting is that in your future, the difference between what people are inside and outside has somewhat been demolished because we have access to all this data. I'm, if I'm just sitting here in the future, I know your fuckability scale, mm. I know what all the other people think about you, I know everything. So, right. I, and I think that's an interesting uh, vision. Well, you know, the thing, and also the most important vision is one's credit ranking and mm -hmm. how one stacks up there. You know, but that's, that's 
becoming increasingly true now. You know, I mean, uh, I can go home right now and look up my Amazon ranking. I mean, I have a credit rating. I have, uh, I have so many different, you know, I remember my Stuyvesant 86.894, just like Lenny, you know. There's so many ways in which we're categorized now, in which we're numerically, and I know so many friends who like, you know, daily measure their carb intake and this and that and the other thing. Everything's becoming sort of digital, you know, and, and, and there's nothing I can do about that. I mean, I think in the future we will know so much more about each other whether we want to or not. And in some ways, it's people who don't want to share that information who are considered the freaks and the losers, people who don't have, and one of the rankings in this book is personality rankings. And, the, and it's not how good your personality is. It's simply how much information you share about yourself. You know? Let's say you were abused as a child. That would be the first thing you would broadcast on your apparat to everywhere you go. Any further questions? I'm Well, um, first of all, uh, you know, uh, are they uh, Russian Orthodox or, or Russian Jewish? No, no. They're Serbian Orthodox. Oh, Serbian Orthodox. Okay. I would bring up some problems with the Croats. <laughs> I would just start talking about how... I'm sorry? Well, don't. This is, <laughs> this is how you make them love you, you know. Uh, and why did the Slovenes split? It was such a great country. And, uh, and the, well, the Bosnians we won't even start with. Um, I don't know what their political orientation is, so I'm just kidding, of course. Um, I don't know. Whenever I take someone to meet my parents, uh, their speeches aren't like the ones in this book, but, you know, they do. <laughs> their opinions about the, the current administration, et cetera, are shocking for some Americans of my, you know, generation to hear. Uh, but they're very strong opinionated. This is the thing you should remember, that, that people from that part of the world believe very strongly in things and will, very, and will tell you in no uncertain manner. Yes, yes, you've noticed that. Yes, yes. So, you know, they'll say, look, uh, you're bald. Not to you, but to me, you know, they'll say, you're bald. You know, why, why are you bald? That's stupid. You shouldn't do that. You know? <laughs> you know, e everything is taken as a personal failing, you know. You're, so when did you become short? We just noticed that about you. Um, why couldn't you have grown to six foot one? I mean, not that we have, but, you know, it'd be nice. So just think about that and never take anything personally, you know, I think when you meet the in-laws, just, just, you know, they're from a different part of the world. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> you live in Santa Cruz. E basta così. Well, you know, it, it strikes me too that uh, with your last book you created a country, Absurdistan, and this, in this book you create a whole new world, which is the future. You kind of like creating worlds out of whole cloth, don't you? I like creating worlds out of whole cloth, and I also enjoy having immigrants. And I think Lenny, in some way, although he was born in America, uh, I didn't want him to be an immigrant the way the other characters were, but I wanted him to be an immigrant from my world. The, you from know, the present. From the, the present, future. yes. He's an immigrant. It's almost like a time-traveling kind of novel. Do you feel optimistic? I mean, obviously, there's some <laughs> signs to the contrary in the book, but do you feel optimistic about readers? You know, uh, so far on this book tour, and uh, I've done Brooklyn, Seattle, Portland, and now the San Francisco area. Yes, I'm optimistic. Things look great in these towns. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and I've had so many people come up to me at readings, and when they have me sign, they have me write, you know, I, will, I don't think anything in this book will happen, Gary Steingart, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and, that, and that is how I want to sign every book, you know, because... What we, you know, reading is something so different. What I'm noticing is everyone is writing. 
which isn't bad inherently. I mean, I, work, I teach at Columbia at the Creative Writing Program. It costs 100,000 US dollars to complete this program. We have no shortage of applicants. You know, we have people writing, and from all over the world, you know, people will write in and, and, and want to apply. It's almost as if we live in this culture of endless self-expression, whether I'm updating pictures of dachshunds to my Facebooking account, you know, and, and writing offers no barriers to access. Anybody can write. You just need, a, you know, some implement to write. Um, and it's part of our culture of self-expression. We're the avatar in the video game. Reading requires something different that maybe is a little more difficult these days. It requires one to actually surrender to something different, which is to the consciousness of another individual. It requires a huge act of empathy to actually pick up a book and read for 350 pages, especially if we're, you know, we're white-collar workers or whatever we are, academia. We're constantly bombarded with little packets of information all day long. We come home. It's hard to pick up something like this after dealing with text data and other data all day long. And one thing, you know, I'm, I'm fine with people buying my books on the Kindle or the iPad, but one thing that happens when we switch away from this device, which is lovely, I think, just lovely, to something else like a Kindle is that the book becomes yet another file that's transmitted through the air, like millions of other things that you get per day, whether they're photos or, 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 or anything you know, of, that, of that kind. So I do worry for the future. On the other hand, you know, our story, our need for narrative, our need for storytelling, that's never going to end. What I do find interesting, if I may go on for a tiny second longer, is shows like Mad Men, The Sopranos, The Wire, smart, because they take everything that a novel does, the long time that it takes to develop a character, you know, the, the, the giant narrative arcs, the ability to introduce you to entire worlds, that's what the novel does well. But these, what these shows do is they say, you know, basically, for people who can't read, you know, We'll, we'll show it to you. You just sit back and passively and, and we'll beam it into your eye. And there's nothing, those are brilliant, brilliant shows. But I do think something is lost when we go, when, when, that, when this world is completely gone and we lose the ability to, to have that kind of emphatic connection with another human being. Well, you know, Gary, I'd say that reading itself is a creative act and that when I pick up a book or whenever anybody here picks up a book, they're collaborating with you. Yes. You're, you're writing the screenplay, essentially, and they're producing the movie in that act of reading. Right. And, the, and I think that that's what makes reading so important because it, it's, a cr it's a way for anybody to become a creative artist for themselves. Yes, and when I do teach fiction, I do ask people to ask to leave little, not to spell everything out, but to leave little breaks in their story. I mean, I don't mean physical breaks, but a little place for the reader to enter so that she can, she can think about it herself and create her own narrative that's part of this, you know. I, I think nothing can be more wonderful. And, and, you know, as much as I love writers, I think readers for me are, are a lot more important. Uh, there's a magazine in, what, in Portland, Oregon, uh, called Tin House. Uh, have you heard of it? Uh, it's a great magazine. And, and now, and they have tons of submissions. And one thing they are instituting now is <laughs> if you're going to submit a poem or a story to Tin House, you also have to submit a receipt showing that you've bought a book from an independent bookstore such as this one in the last couple of weeks. And then they'll consider your story or poem. Do we have any more questions? I think one over there. Right there. Well, you know, uh, not to write everything down. So, you know, you, you, when you create a character, you create an entire set of, 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 at least I do, an entire set of characteristics for them, an entire biography, you know. And then, and, and also you have an entire set of things that will happen. You, you have an outline of, let, let's say, 20 or 30 things that happen. What I do is I won't put the whole biography in. And I won't put, if I have 30 things happening, I'll take out seven of them just so there'll be a kind of gap 
and then the, and then the reader has to make sure that, that she or he can, cre can recreate what that gap means. Sometimes it means just, uh, like in this book, it means having two different characters and then having a gap, you know, one, one person speaks and then stops, and then another person picks up, and then when the first person picks up the story, some time has passed so that you don't know what's happened to him or to her. You know, and all these little techniques in a way to keep the, the reader on his or her toes thinking, oh wait, did this really happen? Or am I just imagining it? And that's the act of imagination that you want on the part of your reader. What are you imagining next, Gary? Do you know? Yes, yes. I think, you know, I got to say, a book like this, hopefully it's not too depressing to read because there's humor, but it took the wind out of me writing uh, at this, you know, the satirical level for, for three and a half years living in Vanze, you know, and all these other places that are scary parts of humanity. It just, it took a lot out of me, and I think I'm going to write some nonfiction, you know, uh, which is, can be scary too, but I think I want to write about my past, uh, my childhood, uh, in a collection of essays that I'm sure the publishers will call memoir, because, you know, that sells, and I promise it'll be more truthful than James Fry's uh, A Million Little Pieces, uh, but not that much, you know. <laughs> Boy, my rehab years, woo! <laughs> Those were the years. <laughs> Uh, so I, I, I've written a bunch of these already for the New Yorker and uh, Three Penny Review and a couple of other uh, places. So uh, I think I want to take a little break, and then I'm going to get back to on, this, on the dystopian horse and do something else like this. Well, you know, one of the things, when you said you wanted to sign this book, uh, I hope none of this ha ever happens. I think that's actually one of the reasons these kind of books get written. When you create a work of fiction like 1984 or Brave New World, it becomes a work of fiction, and therefore the world swerves away from that path. Yes. No, I'm so glad that 1984, for example, uh, never came true. Uh, a Brave New World, I don't know about. Whenever I read that book, I think uh, so much of it is, is still imminent. And Fahrenheit 451, I think, is the scariest book when it comes to visualizing a, a future without literature. Why? Because in that book, books are, in that world, in that book, books are burned. But most people don't even want to read them. You know, and, and to me, that's somehow even scarier, that it's not an authoritarian system that imposes a lack of books upon that world. It's the people themselves that decide, no, we'd rather not, we'd rather not invest our time into doing it. Well, actually, we have firm evidence sitting right in front of us that that's not going to happen. Good. And I <laughs> I'm so happy to see that. Santa I, Cruz. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for thank coming you. here tonight. And uh, we'll... It's now time for all of you to take out your iPhones and catch up on your text messages, your voicemail, your update your Facebook site. And I believe that... Oh, yeah, uh, i got to do that, too. <laughs> More ducks and porn. Mr. Steingart here <laughs> is going to uh, be willing to actually handwrite signatures in your smelly old books. Yeah. And he might smell them for you if, if you ask nicely. I'll sign Kindles, too. You will sign Kindles. Oh, my God. I have already. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.